0: Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back everyone. My special guest this week is Connie Stewart, who is a Humboldt County constituent of mine and uh, also Executive Director of California's Center for Rural Policy at Humboldt State University. Connie is a local hero. She was recently recognized as Humboldt County Woman of the Year. She's been the mayor of Arcata and she's my hero today because she came all the way from Humboldt County to testify in the Natural Resources Committee in support of one of my bills. So welcome to the Off the Cuff Podcast, which I think is your first podcast Thank ever. You.
1: Yes, it's my first podcast ever.
0: Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, First, I got to ask you, what was it like to testify in a congressional hearing? Have you done that before?
1: I've never done a congressional hearing. I testify all the time in Sacramento, but um, it's much more scripted here yeah. than, it, than it is in Sacramento. Um, was that surprising? Um, it was a little surprising. Um, it's you know seems so much civil, more civil than when I do broadband. First of all, it wasn't hand-to-hand combat with the telecoms here. It was you know right. thanks to you for doing the work on the bill. Um, because it's got bipartisan support. And seems to. It seems so far. to. and so I'm feeling optimistic about it. Yeah.
0: Well, I am too. It's, it's a good sign when your bill has a hearing in committee. That usually uh, is the first step before a markup and a chance for your bill to advance to the floor. So we're glad that that happened. But uh, so most of my listeners have never been in a congressional hearing, although some people with insomnia watch C SPAN from time to time. And uh, you're right, members typically read from a script, and, and that surprised me when I first got here, too. We're also very time-limited. Each of us only has a few minutes, maybe three to five minutes for our questions, and so... And that clock is
1: ticking and right in front of you, and don't right. go over it.
0: <laughs> and so often members either want to ask specific questions that they've pre-written out so they manage their time or they just want to uh, get on the soapbox and make a little speech and try to get their sound bite in.
1: Well, I was also just impressed um, at the, all the phone calls I got for, you know, and the fact that you have to turn your testimony in 48 hours in advance, so everyone's read what you're coming to say, right. and and just the amount of prep, it was really wonderful for your staff and also just from the committee as well, um, you know, everyone called, made sure I knew where I was going, what I was doing. So. Rural people can testify, and they don't have to be afraid to come to Washington, D.C. E. And
0: They can, and <laughs> yes. And thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're glad to have you. Let's talk a little about broadband, then, because that was the subject of my bill. And uh, this is a bill that is attempting to make it easier to um, have broadband solutions that involve these large tracts of federal land that we see, especially in the western United States. And it's trying to address some problems that you have... Knocked your head against, right?
1: Oh, yes, oh, yes. We've had projects delayed for, for years at a time, and most of my colleagues that work in rural broadband have had projects delayed for years at a time because of permitting issues and right of way issues. It just the lack of knowledge that a lot of federal employees have because they don't work on very many of these projects Mm -hmm. as often as they work on other environmental um, impacts to our public lands.
0: So before we go into the details of how we're going to make the federal government part of the solution for rural broadband instead of part of the problem, maybe we should back up a second because I just realized everybody listening to this has broadband.
1: That's true. They're downloading
0: uh, a podcast. They're downloading
1: a podcast, and they're probably regular users.
0: They should consider themselves uh, very lucky.
1: As a matter of fact, they should, because about 50% of the people who live in your district don't have the luxury of having broadband enough that they can listen to your podcast. 50%, 50%.
0: that's a big deal. So let's talk, for for those who take broadband for granted, my listeners here, let's talk about the importance of making sure everybody has it. What does it mean to not have that connectivity?
1: Well, it probably means you're not going to be able to get into Stanford University because you're not going to be able to compete on an education level, even though teachers do the best they can. Having access to um, all of the archival information. I mean, I grew up with the Encyclopedia Botanica in right. my Me too. in my <laughs> We're bedroom. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, nowadays uh, you just Google it and come up with it. And if students don't have the ability to do that, um, healthcare. We talked a little bit in the committee about telehealth, but you know, there's other kinds of um, healthcare. You know, being able to get your prescription. Being able to call 911, there are places in your district where the local 911 is not accessible sometimes um, and people have died, according Mm -hmm. to the folks that that talk to me, uh, because they haven't been able to get um, an ambulance in time or anything because they haven't been able to use their cell phone, even in places. There are a lot of places, especially up in our area of the district, where you can drive for an hour and a half Without having cell phone service and with the amount of slides and road closures we've had, it's been life or death there, too. We had a school bus on the way to Humboldt State University that got stuck in the snow overnight and couldn't call for help. No, Kim? Um, no. We had one um, student that had to walk four miles—I mean, four hours in the snow to get coverage. Because their car got stuck in on a Forest Service Road. So, you know, we this is life and death stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: So here. we obviously emergency response, healthcare, telemedicine, I think everybody can understand that. There's the obvious entertainment uh, value, <laughs> we're streaming so much content. Uh, but there's also an economic There is an piece economic this, component. Right?
1: There's a lot of small businesses in our community that like to sell goods and services to the World Wide Web. There's architects that would like to work from home. Um, I've met a couple who've moved up from places to live in our beautiful area only to find out that they should have checked.
0: They can't get those big um, files up and, files. and down.
1: We have, some, we have some Hollywood people, too. I have a neighbor, a Hollywood person, who he's happy because we have better service in my neighborhood, and now he can work from, um, from Humboldt County without having to get in his car and drive.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, it's uh, it's something that, increasingly, uh, is just essential for our economy and our quality of life. Why is it so hard, though, to get broadband into rural areas like parts of Humboldt County? I, I go to the Mendocino Coast in my district, and there's really lousy uh, connectivity there. Uh, Trinity and Del Norte have issues. Sonoma Coast, even West Marin County, oh, uh, yes. 30 minutes from San Francisco, has this problem. Yeah. Why is it so hard?
1: There, I mean, there. I think there is this... Um, well, be partially because broadband is a um, consumer good, and it's not considered a government service. It's not considered essential service. So we let... It's supposed to be a for-profit business. Right. And in communities that are smaller and communities that have geographic challenges, it's harder to get service there. So the
0: infrastructure only gets built to you if someone can make enough money an
1: economic case for that now we have programs of course in California and in the past the federal government has had programs to help subsidize those costs but still to a stock market company um, that has to answer to its shareholders it's a little hard to say we're going to go out to a community with less than a thousand people in it and and spend a lot of money getting there
0: but we have uh, schools And we have fire stations and health clinics and all these other things in rural, remote areas that have somehow found a way to get dedicated fiber lines.
1: Unfortunately, we have a lot of what we call closed systems. And those systems, um, there's a subsidy to pay for a specific user, services brought right past customers' homes and businesses mm-hmm. to get to that user and then there, it's a closed network.
0: So the so E-Rate program for example e- is wait, a f- federal a- program that gets that line to a school in a rural area but it goes right past other people that could... Those school kids
1: go home and they may not have service at home but they may have service at the school yeah. and that's one of the things that we're, we've been working in our region to do something more of a cooperative line where we bring a third party in to pay for the line and then people can buy service and cheaper um, backhaul, Mm -hmm. what we call backhaul, um, so that they can get information out of these communities without having to pay the total cost of the investment for building that
0: line. All right, back to my bill then. Okay. um, Because those are the basics. So let's talk about the things that drive you nuts with the federal government when you're trying to get big fiber projects done because you can't really do one in rural California without running into the federal government.
1: No, you and running into multiple agencies in the federal government. One of the um, one of the things that people don't realize is when we come in with fiber, I mean the the pipe is about the same as an. It's your telephone pipe or your um, electricity pipe. You know, it's just a small circular twelve inch pipe that and has that can serve a, thousands of people. And they can serve th- thousands of people and can provide endless service because we're sending uh you know a light through it essentially to light it. Um, but it's a small tiny disturbance, but yet it's treated as though it's a timber harvest plan or right. or something like that. So You know, that's been a challenge is how do you permit if you're going through a disturbed area. Now, what we didn't say today is that our major telecom companies are grandfathered in. So they don't have this problem. So it's only when you bring a third party um, that doesn't have that grandfather clause um, to avoid um, the National Environmental Policy Act that you run into the problem. They have the whole environmental law put on them for um, for getting through these disturbed areas.
0: Okay, so, so there's environmental review. Mm-hmm. That's time consuming. Um, you also testified in committee today that it's, it's frustrating because each time you do that environmental review, there's not a lot of expertise and staffing capacity at these federal agencies, so they sort of have to create from scratch what the environmental review even needs to cover, what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And as you move from region to region, you're starting over again with entire new teams. There's not even any internal guidance on consistently how to do this. And
1: it's actually um, location, place-based location by place-based location. So oftentimes, um, in our region, we're going through two forests, and it's two separate reviews you get different as, opposed, superintendents and as opposed to yeah, yeah having one, the agency have an overall look, and then you're also maybe hitting. Um, Bureau of Land Management land or you're hitting uh, state park or federal park land. And so each agency is reviewing separate under their own guidelines. So your
0: digital 299, for example. Yes. That's going to go through the Shasta Trinity National Forest it's gonna go through the Six Rivers National Forest. It's gonna go through Whiskey Town. Yeah. Um, and it's going to go, hit a few
1: BLM spots too. Um, okay. In Trinity County as well. And then it's gonna come down and it's still going to hit the California Coastal Commission and that's not your problem
0: anymore. Not any, No, you gotta, <laughs> gotta yell at someone else about that. <laughs>
1: no, well, and so it's just hard to, um, to make sure that you can do these things in a timely manner if a snag happens. And we, you know, this is a fiber optic project, but we're also putting up cell towers um, as well. And so, you know, one of the questions we're going to have for the agency is, can we do the fiber optic part first and then put the cell towers in later? Because if we have to wait for the review for for each cell tower spot too, it could take years to get a permit.
0: All right. So we're not talking about getting rid of environmental laws or lowering environmental standards? We do not want to lower any environmental standards, we just want better coordination. Right, and we want them to have the resources in-house so they have staff that can actually spend the time on these things, move these permits along better. My bill uh, does some of that. It actually lets these federal agencies hang on to the fees they get from project proponents and use those fees in-house to staff a permitting process and to do some planning and Absolutely. things
1: like that. One of the things people don't know is when you pay a specific agency that agency doesn't necessarily get to keep the money. It goes <laughs> into the federal coppers and so you're not really building up a, a, a fund at these local agencies in order to do projects moving right. forward so money has to be appropriated differently.
0: And So the other thing that the bill does is it, it addresses this siloing problem we have with our federal government. This one really drives me nuts, where BLM won't work with the Forest Service, and they won't work with the Park Service, and none of them will work with federal health clinics or E-rate project recipients in schools. And yet there's a federal relationship cutting across all of that, and none of them will work with local communities. So you may have fiber running out to a national park that could serve a local community, but if People say, that's not my department, that's not my job. You have lost the opportunity for a partnership there.
1: Yes, and, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be a little nicer and say, sometimes the local people even understand on the ground, but they have regional bosses to answer who may not understand. Right. Um, and so things get stuck. And you have to also try to figure out where the sticky point is, too, and that can take be time-consuming as well.
0: And you, you talked about how a single fiber line can serve all these thousands of people. Well, a single fiber line can also serve multiple federal agencies, and yet right now their practice is to each contract on their very own for their own dedicated lines even when they're right next door to each other so there's enormous cost savings possibilities enormous as well as the opportunity to serve nearby communities and my bill broadens the authorization for these federal agencies to just do all this common sense stuff and to have the resources to do it
1: and it's it's that's a wonderful feature because um, the federal government is an anchor for a lot of these communities they you know they're the job creator they're the business that's important and if they can't participate and actually post 9-11 that cooperation got harder because of fear of security and in many ways there are plenty of ways to um, to have a dedicated fiber to that agency but still allow it to um, participate in the community by and also serve visitors better who are using that, employees and visitors better. So Um, and get better service. That's the other irony is a lot of that, their service is a wireless-based service because they don't have fiber to their facilities. Um, And so that's been a frustration, you know, this idea that you have to have national buys. I mean, this drives everyone crazy on all of the federal projects. Like, you're located in the community and the federal government should help with economics of that community as much as they can. But if you, especially when it's cheaper even, and sometimes it's cheaper, but because of national contracts or regional contracts, it's been frustrating to have that money leave the community and, right. uh, and, and lose the benefits right. that could come for everyone, including the employees of the federal government.
0: So before we move on from my bill, which I've been shamelessly promoting well, in this conversation. Well, it's a great bill. Thank so you. you should,
1: and you, it's a wonderful bill because there are a lot of things that can be done to help with deployment that aren't, please, can you give us money? Right. And it's really important to look at the policy yeah. side, and I'm really grateful to you that you took the time to come up with a bill that all, every point helps. <laughs> we hope
0: so, and we hope it can be strongly bipartisan. Absolutely. But I really should tell people, what the bill number is? That's
1: right. Let's do that.
0: I always forget my it's bill number. It's twenty-five
1: twenty-four. Twenty-five
0: twenty-four. <laughs> so if you if you're listening and you think that sounds like a great bill, how do I write a letter of support? How do I check in to see if it's made it out of committee? HR twenty-five twenty-four. Yes. Awesome. All right. Now that's enough broadband. People's eyes are glazing over. We we have to rapidly move on. Especially
1: because they're the people that have broadband. I know. So.
0: They take all this for granted. <laughs> yes. Right. But let's talk about Humboldt County, Okay. because you have kind of done it all in Humboldt County. You've uh, been the mayor of Arcata. You are now working in Humboldt State. You were a staffer for a great assemblywoman, Patty Berg, back in the day. And you've been there 33 years.
1: I came up to go to HSU as a student, and um, actually my dorm, I can see my dorm room from my office window. Oh, wow. Yes. So I feel like I've come full circle since That's I'm great. coming up as an 18-year-old.
0: Well, Humboldt County is a is a, a a fascinating county to everyone in my district, really to people all over the country. And we all know that part of that is that you know a huge amount of the weed in America is grown in Humboldt County. But Humboldt is a is a place of great beauty, of, of really uh, interesting character. It's idiosyncratic. Uh, how has it changed over 33 years?
1: Um, well, it, I, more people live there over, over the time and it, um, it's a lot busier. Um, I think, um, it, you know, we have a lot more economic opportunities than we did in the past. A lot of new people starting businesses and figuring out how to live there. And, of course, marijuana now that it's legal recreationally in California is sort of, mm-hmm. sort of le- legal. We'll see mm-hmm. um, how everything pans out. Um, You know that culture is sort of which has been hidden in our communities is coming out Um, And so we're getting to meet neighbors that we didn't meet Um, You know there are a lot of other struggles that come with it. Um, We have you know, we have our challenges Um, The opioid problem that's happening all over the country hits us as well right now about one in four babies are being born Um, with some kind of substance abuse wow. problem. Wow, that's so a staggering have, statistic. We have some major challenges, which we're working on together. Um, um, but And we have some educational challenges as well, But um, and we're trying to reopen the nursing program at, um, at Humboldt State University. We lost right. the nursing program, so we're working with um, the College of the Redwoods to try to bring nursing back, which is um, exciting. There'll be a program at College of the Redwoods mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to really work on job creation and how we're going to do that and I think you know there's a lot more cooperation than there was when I first got there when when I uh, graduated from college we had the timber wars.
0: Well I was going to ask you about that because <laughs> you said a moment ago there's more economic opportunity than there used to be but you know a narrative that you run into in Humboldt and other parts of the North coast is that we're still kind of trying to recapture the economic uh, opportunity from the end of the, the timber heyday? You uh, see it a little differently.
1: Uh, you know there are some communities that are still struggling but overall um, Humboldt County has an unemployment rate right now of 4.3 which makes us lower than the federal government rate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we struggle with, we have a lot of high-paying jobs and a lot of low-paying jobs and what we really lost was those middle-class jobs and so we're struggling to try to bring those back um, and figuring out, um, because I work at a university, I have to talk about this, figuring out how people can keep their jobs and improve their uh, skill level while still working to move up the career ladder um, is a challenge that we're we're now taking on head on and we've gotten some, some workforce funding to look at our education pipeline and have that working closely with business and industries to create those higher paying jobs. Um, because if we can get people in to work quickly and then get them more skills without having to quit and go back to school somewhere, um, that that can help a lot. So
0: that's what we're working okay. on. How important is it to the economic future, and then I'll just say quality of life of Humboldt County, to get this marijuana policy right? To, to find... Uh, find a way through the, the chaos and, and have a settled, functional policy on how we're going to control this substance. Well, it,
1: it, there are enormous challenges, and, and not just for Humboldt County, but for the whole district. Um, you know, one of the challenges is um, figuring out the excise tax, Figuring out how to make sure that all of the impacts are taken care of and the industry can move from sort of a black market industry into the daylight um, and figuring out the regulatory challenges that go with that. Um, I think we'll, I'm hopeful, I'm gonna be optimistic mm-hmm. that we will end up in a better place. Right now, we're struggling because there's been such a spike in real estate costs as people move in to see you know, if they can get a share or a piece of us. But we're gonna struggle with keeping our marketing protected too. There's a lot of people who are looking at branding and marketing. Um, but you know if we can do this right um, it could be a, it could be an advantage to us you've got well. a
0: huge part of the economy that can come out of the shadows and actually pay taxes and do banking and well, all and, of that and,
1: and save money for their children and you know, so their children can go to college yeah. and maybe do something else besides right. be in that industry and, not, and also bring crime down because if they can participate in banking there's not going to be so much cash flowing around and and that, so and the
0: environmental damage, and the environmental
1: yeah. damage, and, and you know, being able to get everyone who to co- really come out of the shadows and have a legitimate mm-hmm. business.
0: But you're right; we've got to get the, the taxation and the regulations right, because if it is too much and you drive the cost of the legal stuff up too high, the underground piece is just going to continue to thrive in the shadows. Well,
1: there there is going to need to be enforcement yeah. once we get there. There's going to need, I mean, and I think actually the industry will um, will take care of that. You know, if you've got a, You've got a farmer who's um, followed all the rules, and they're only making, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year. They're not going to like it if their next door neighbor is not following any rules, well, polluting the creek, and making a million dollars a year. Yeah. So um, I have a feeling that some of that stuff will police
0: itself out. Excellent. Well, I couldn't resist getting into those subjects because we've got you here. Broadband but, so and marijuana. Broadband and marijuana. We talk and, about
1: that a lot in Humboldt County.
0: Uh, so. Thirty years, thirty-three years from now, is there anything wildly different that you foresee for Humboldt County, well, or will it still be this wonderful uh, idiosyncratic place behind the Redwood Curtain?
1: I, I think there'll still be some of that. I, you know, I'm, we'll be older because Humboldt County is aging. Um, we will be different. There will be a lot more people of color because that's happening all mm-hmm. over California. And, um, and hopefully we'll be a place where kids can come back after they go off to college somewhere else um, and stay and thrive and make a living.
0: Great, sounds good. Connie Stewart, thanks for being my guest.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me all day and thank you for letting me testify on your bill.
0: You were a star.
1: Thank you.
0: So now we're going to go to one of my favorite segments of the podcast where we ask two of our young, energetic summer interns to weigh in. We're sort of putting them on the spot, and they get to ask me a question about anything they want. But before they do that, I want them to tell you a little bit about themselves, where they're from, where they're in school, and maybe whether anything particularly surprising has happened to them as an intern so far.
1: My name is Erica Foster. I'm from Long Beach, California. I currently attend the University of California, Santa Barbara. Go Gauchos! <laughs> and I guess this would be a pretty interesting thing, getting to ask the congressman a question on his podcast.
0: This is the highlight of your internship so far? I,
1: not that. I think it's uh, dealing with the constituents that come in. They're, oh, okay. they're really awesome. I love you.
0: Alright, well let's roll with your question.
1: Um, so my question is about the... 18 budget, Um, so they're proposing to cut a lot of the um, cuts to the Department of Education as well as the stop subsidizing the interest on student loans. Do you think these cuts will successfully go through Congress, and if so, what will be the next steps to ensuring that the people most impacted by this aren't left out,
0: like left behind? Great question. Very timely question because we are just getting information about President Trump's first full budget proposal, and... uh, as far as I can tell, uh, it is dead on arrival. He is proposing so many cuts to so many things that, you know, maybe the, the, the ideologues that he stacked his cabinet with think these are good ideas, but these are not going to fly in Congress where people have to go back and answer to their constituents. I mean, massive cuts to Medicaid, cuts to Social Security, things that this guy promised he would not do. Over and over in the campaign, he said he wasn't going to touch Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare... Uh, And he's just made a mockery of that with this draconian budget. To add insult to injury, uh, he's coupling it with massive tax cuts to the rich and a huge military buildup that he hasn't even yet bothered to explain why we even need, since we spend more in our military than the next seven or eight countries combined. So do I think this thing is going to actually happen? No, I think there's going to be tremendous pushback, thankfully even some bipartisan pushback. And uh, I, I guess the real mystery to me is why President Trump floated a budget like this. Because yes. he's not going to get it. The, the budget that passes uh, late this summer, early this fall, is going to look nothing like what he has proposed. And it just seems to me like he's setting himself up for yet another defeat. Yeah. Okay. All right? Thank you. All right. Let's keep going. <laughs> uh, my name is Paul. I've lived all over, but originally grew up in Illinois. Um, Graduate from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Okay. Um, my question is... Uh, Wait, first got to tell us the most interesting thing you've had happen as an intern. Uh, boy. Um, just getting to work on some of these bills that are passing through um, natural resources recently, as well as some of these conservation memos, um, seeing how... Um, some of our efforts have translated over the last 40 years um, with the Endangered Species Act. Alright, you're, you're into environmental policy then. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Let's hear your question. Um, well, Congressman, as someone who's on both Natural Resources Committee and on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, I'm wondering what challenges you see um, when we are attempting to build and improve upon our infrastructure while at the same time um, protecting the environment and limiting our carbon emissions. Yeah. So, great question. And if we're going to do a serious infrastructure package, you know, there's talk about Trump has said he wants to do a trillion dollars, although he can't seem to unveil this elusive infrastructure plan of his. Uh, There's a group of us uh, here in the House and the Progressive Caucus that have unveiled a $2 trillion infrastructure package. So we're trying to be bold and ambitious, but... You're right. Uh, As you do that, and this kind of came up in our conversation with Connie Stewart about broadband infrastructure, you do have to navigate environmental laws, and you do have to strike the right balance with uh, protecting the environment. I think some of it depends on the type of infrastructure you choose to do. So I I guess part of my answer is I want to see us invest in smart infrastructure. I don't think uh, a lot of oil and gas pipelines and LNG terminals and things like that are really what we need for the future. Uh, and, and frankly, I think we've got to look at existing infrastructure that has been poorly maintained and just needs to be rehabbed and modernized. And so operating within the footprint of those existing facilities is, is a pretty easy lift environmentally. In terms of new infrastructure, uh, there will be some trade-offs every now and then. Even when you cite a, a solar project or a wind farm, you got to make sure you do it right. You got to make sure you do it in in places where it's appropriate. And so I'm never really going to advocate that we uh, shortcut environmental reviews or environmental standards, but we do want federal agencies to work efficiently as they review all these things. And that's where I think we still can make a lot of headway. Staffing these agencies with the professionals who know how to do permitting, who know how to Consult the science and just speed things along. That can go a long way towards making sure these projects actually happen. But we should all, we should always hold them to high standards and we don't need to choose really between our great environmental laws and doing big bold things on infrastructure. Off the cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.